0: Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the United States. This is still the 25th of May, 2020, Memorial Day, and I'm giving you a second um, dose of the podcast because I have a lot more material I want to cover before I get into some basic research again. So what we've been talking about are diseases that establish a foundation for morbidity and comorbidity so that any future disease or pathophysiological state is exacerbated because of the foundational illness. And so we've been talking now about obesity as that foundational illness and the various diseases that are associated with it. These are diseases that are linked, of course, to dyslipidemia, to carbohydrate metabolism, to uh, problems with immune responses, and also everything below that at the next level, which includes cancer, cardiovascular disease, neurodegeneration, and propensity for very acute infectious disease sequelae. So. That's where we're at right now, and what I want to do is go back to the beginning, and this is a straightforward biochemical examination of how we get to what obesity is, and indeed, how we get to diabetes. So let's get started. Recall that ATP is the energy currency of the cell, and that it is brought about via the oxidation of protein and carbohydrate, or carbohydrate, and you'll generate about 4 kilocalories per gram of that nutrient, or lipid, where you'll get 9 kilocalories per gram. And that ATP is going to be used for biosynthetic processes, like what? Like nucleic acid biosynthesis, like membrane biogenesis, like organelle fission, mitochondria, peroxisomes, for example. ATP is also going to be used to drive ion pumps. It's also going to be used to generate heat in some systems. And of course, very important in terms of bioenergetics, it's going to allow for chemical work. Right? Chemical work translated into physical work. So right away, I want to jump into two aspects of obesity. So I told you about ATP. ATP is like an ultimate goal. So you consume nutrients. And of course, there are essential nutrients, like essential amino acids, essential vitamins and minerals, um, essential fatty acids. What essential means for all of you that forgot or any of you novices out there, in nutrition, essential simply means the body doesn't synthesize it. Or if it does synthesize it, it doesn't do it to a sufficient quantity so that it is useful to drive regular metabolic homeostasis and uh, therefore health. So in past authentic biochemistries and in very authentic biochemistry video lectures, I've told you about the fact that adipocytes generate an adipokine called leptin. And leptin is a uh, protein that's made from the fat, binds to a receptor, in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. And when the leptin receptor binds to that, when leptin binds to its receptor, it turns off one aspect, some particular cells in the arcuate nucleus, and it turns on others. Turning on meaning it induces expression in one system and it reduces or obliterates expression of certain genes in the other. So let's look at the negative part first. Leptin receptor binding to leptin coming from the adipose tissue, coming essentially as a well fed marker at the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus, it shuts down the NPY and the AGRP uh, nucleotides, or uh, excuse me, nucleus. So, what's the NPY? The NPY is a neuropeptide widely expressed in the central nervous system and influences. Quite a bit of physiological uh, processes downstream, including, of course, cortical excitability, the stress response, food intake. Okay, that's really important, circadian rhythms, and cardiovascular function or cardiovascular tone. The neuropeptide functions through G protein coupled receptors to inhibit the adenylate cyclase, so it shuts down cyclic AMP synthesis. It activates the mitogen-activated protein kinase, also known affectionately in authentic biochemistry and elsewhere as MAP kinase. And it regulates intracellular calcium levels and activates potassium channels. Okay, In general, NPY and the agouti peptide increase appetite. Now, leptin shut that down at the arcuate nucleus. Same time leptin turns on the POMC and the CART neurons. Okay, so we've talked about this in the past. I'm just reminding you. So, what is a POMC? That's the pro opio melanocortin complex. So, the pro opio melanocortin gene is synthesized as one RNA, but then ultimately it's turned into nine different polypeptides. We talked about these. You have ACTH, the adrenocorticotropin hormone, you have the CLIP, you have the alpha MSH, you have the gamma MSH, and you also have beta endorphins and net enkephalins, as well as beta MSH. So all of those proteins serve different functions downstream, but basically the POMC and then the CART, which I'm going to explain to you in a minute they diminish appetite, okay? So the satiety has been reached because leptin has been secreted by the adipocytes in the visceral fat. So the satiety signal is sent to the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. It turns on the POMC and the CART pathway and that decreases appetite. So let's talk about the CARP. That's got a very affectionate name, cocaine and Amphetamine regulated Transcript. C A R T. You see, <clears throat> now this is also a satiety factor, like P O M C is, um, and it's closely associated with the actions of leptin. And then, in contrary to neuropeptide Y, which we just covered, so this is an anorectic peptide. It inhibits both normal and starvation-induced feeding. Completely blocks the feeding response. And it it, it can actually be induced by neuropeptide Y. And of course, it's regulated ultimately um, by leptin. And that's all in the hypothalamus. So I'm just reminding you of that. That's the leptin appetite suppression pathway. Okay. So I told you that ATP is a major goal of nutrition in terms of bioenergetics, because you can get work out of the synthesis of ATP. And you get that by the oxidation of foodstuffs, protein, Carbohydrate and lipid. And now I'm telling you how the satiety pathway is controlled from the adipose. It's controlled, a few other endocrine um, pathways as well, but very important adipokine leptin. Right? All right. Now let's go on. Let's talk a little bit more about POMC so that you don't think that we will not round that out. When ultraviolet light strikes skin cells, also known as keratinocytes. Activates a transcription factor P53, P53, which has a tremendous history in um, published research. Turns on a transcription of a gene encoding, yeah, POMC. Cleavage of the POMC protein produces the alpha-MSH, secreted from the cells, and stimulates nearby melanocytes, so it's a paracrine effect in that instance, to synthesize melanin, the pigment melanin in packets called the melanosomes. The melanosomes are transferred to skin cells where they form a protective cap over the nucleus to protect what? DNA damage, ultraviolet damage to DNA. Cap helps, as I say, protect the DNA within the nucleus and therefore it protects against the damaging effects of ultraviolet light. That's why it's being synthesized. ACTH, of course, we've covered already, secreted in the blood, and it reduces skin inflammation. It's one of the things it does. But it stimulates the release of glucocorticoids from what? Yes, of course, the adrenal cortex. We've been talking a lot about glucocorticoids slash corticosteroids, right? Beta-endorphin, of course, suppresses pain. And one of the ideas is the reason it's synthesized at the same time as UV light <laughs> is there a pain associated with sunburn. Okay, But that's probably stretching it a little bit about exactly it's synthesized from that pathway. So, besides melanogenesis, endogenous melanocortin receptor agonists are involved in feeding homeostasis, body mass, and inflammation. It's all coming from the MSH, okay? The melanocyte-stimulating hormone. So, a little bit more now getting into the intracellular signaling pathways. Remember that you have insulin secreted also in the well-fed state, but now from the beta cells of the pancreas. But you also get TNF-alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha, which is, of course, a proclamatory cytokine. Both insulin and TNF-alpha promote the proteolytic processing of the SREBP1C that's in the endoplasmic reticulum membrane. Now, that is the sterile response element binding protein, okay? That's what SREBP1 is. And this proteolytic processing of that protein allows it now to migrate to the Golgi. And from the Golgi, further proteolytic processing allows it to migrate into the nucleus, where it acts as a transcription factor. And what does it do there? it turns on the expression of acetyl-CoA carboxylase, fatty acid synthase, hmg coa reductase, and glycerol 3-phosphate acyltransferase. Now, all of those genes that are chromatin remodeled, induced transcriptionally regulated from the proteolytically processed SREBP1C coming from the ER membrane to the Golgi into the nucleus via the induction of insulin and TNF-alpha, all those enzymes I just told you, the carboxylase, the synthase, the reductase, and the acyltransferase, those are all de novo lipid pathway enzymes and regulators of those pathways. What are the two major lipids we're talking about here? Simply fatty acid synthesis and sterile synthesis. And then all the possible recombinations of those pathways making all the membrane lipids. Okay, So that's what's going on here. So in muscle tissue, insulin binds to the insulin receptor. Remember, that is an autophosphorylating tyrosine kinase, by the way, which then induces the insulin uh, uh, response uh, protein, IRS, called IRS-1-2. And then that induces the phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase pathway, which turns on protein kinase b and that signals for the GLUT4 which is the glucose transporter type 4 in muscle to rise to the surface and go to the plasma membrane and when it gets to the plasma membrane the GLUT4 acts as a translocator that's what that means glucose transporter and allows for a glucose uptake in the muscle so muscle is a tissue that is insulin dependent for glucose uptake Okay. Now, interestingly, free fatty acids will block the GLUT4. So if there's a sufficient amount of free fatty acid in the muscle tissue, you won't get glucose uptake. You'll preferentially use fatty acids for oxidation. So in an obesogenic state, you see, here's, here. this goes back to why there is diabetes uh, following an obese status, because you have a lot of free fatty acids. Remember, you have dyslipidemia, so you have a lot of lipase activity at the adipose and a lot lipase activity is going to generate a lot of free fatty acid from storage neutral triacylglycerol and that free fatty acid is going to be in circulation usually bound to serum albumin but it's going to be finding receptors like CD36 receptor the orphan receptor in muscle tissue once it gets into the muscle tissue or adjacent to the plasma membrane that free fatty acid is now going to start acting pro-inflammatory but it's also gonna be doing what we normally see as a presentation of type two diabetes. Uh, And what is that? Well, it is hyperglycemia. That's why it's called a diabetic response, right? And how do you get a hyperglycemia? By blocking the GLUT4. You can't get glucose uptake in the muscle tissue. Glucose remains in circulation. You get, by definition, hyperglycemia. Now in the liver, it's a little bit different. In the liver, the insulin also binds to a receptor. It also triggers the IRS 1 slash 2. It also triggers the phosphatidylenazole 3 kinase and PKB. But in, in the liver tissue, rather than being used to take up glucose uh, directly, what happens here is that you get the protein kinase B actually shuts down gluconeogenesis and turns on glycolysis, Okay. Now, that's really important because the liver isn't supposed to be what? It's not supposed to be taking up glucose. The liver doesn't want glucose. It can synthesize glucose. It's the muscle that is activated to take up glucose. So the insulin is really not inducing glucose uptake. That's why the liver is considered an organ where it is not insulin-dependent glucose uptake, okay? Sure, insulin binds there is a receptor, but it's doing something totally different. It's Shutting down gluconeogenesis from non-carbohydrate precursors, and it's increasing glycolysis, which is the non-oxygen requiring or anaerobic oxidation of glucose to pyruvic acid, and then thence to the potential to make citric acid and if there's sufficient amount of NADH around. Blocking the dehydrogenases in the TCA cycle so that citrate leaves the mitochondrial matrix and it's used for lipogenesis, okay, in the liver. And you do get lipogenesis in the liver. In fact, we talked about the fatty liver disease where not enough of that tricyclycerol is mobilized out of the liver. And you start to get lipid deposits, remember that? The other thing that's happening, of course, in the liver is that, you know, you get the same kind of thing. You get an insulin resistance. So what I was telling you before with the muscle, that's called insulin resistance because of obesity. You get insulin resistance in the liver, but what happens here is you get, Free fatty acids, free fatty acids that are, again, blocking a different glucose transporter that is not actually translocated to the plasma membrane of the hepatocyte because of insulin. The Free fatty acids simply blocks the constituent of GLUT2, which is a different isoform, of glucose transporter, and so you don't get glucose uptake. So enhancing or exacerbating the hyperglycemia of type 2 diabetes. And that's how you, that's what insulin resistance means in muscle versus liver. So all of this basically is a triggering response in the human called dyslipidemia. You get a lot of high circulating fatty acid, which is super common in obesity, as I've been saying. You get fatty acyl-CoA metabolism, which of course is going to block glycolysis in the liver by increasing ATP production through NAD and FAD reduction. That's NAD and FAD reduction making uh, those two nucleotides in the reduced forms are directly going to be used by the mitochondrial electron transport chain per reoxidation, right, of the adenine dinucleotide With the nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, reoxidation of those, and the pumping of the electrons to the electron transport chain, ultimately the transport of the protons across the inner mitochondrial membrane into the inner mitochondrial membrane space, and then those protons pumping back into the mitochondria through the proton pumping F0F1 ATPase, generating ATP. But that NADH that is normally synthesized, for example, in glycolysis, think about the glycerol 3-phosphate dehydrogenase, think about pyruvate dehydrogenase, that shuts down because you have such a huge abundance of NADH being made by beta-oxidation of fatty acids directly in situ in the mitochondria, blocking, therefore, any utilization of NADH in the cytoplasm and then basically shutting down glycolysis. That's how it works. So high NADH will directly block... Pyruvate dehydrogenase and the glycerol dot three three phosphate dehydrogenase; those are two glycolytic um, bottleneck points at, at the middle and at the end of the pathway. So that basically inhibits hepatic glycolysis. Not only that, but ATP mediated the pasture effect, ATP mediated shows that glycolysis also occurring because you got plenty of ATP because you got a lot of NADH and FADH two. Um, from the beta oxidation of the fatty acids. That's where those two nucleotide reduced forms, those nucleotides are coming from. Beta oxidation, fatty acids, long-chain fatty acyl CoAs, shutting all the way down into acetyl-CoA, potentially the acetyl-CoA being used to synthesize ketone bodies, right? So low glucose utilization, increase in serum glucose, hyperglycemia that is, which increases, of course, pancreatic insulin secretion. So now you get a lot of insulin secreted, so you get hyperinsulinemia, hyperinsulinemia, the initial phases of T2D, which further exacerbates the insulin resistance. The more you get a hormone binding to its receptor, eventually those cells that are targeted by that hormone will start to endocytose the receptor, in this case, the insulin receptor, because there's too much stimulation. So the, the homeostatic controlling mechanisms of the cell and of the whole body Are noticing the hyperglycemia and and not wanting to take up a higher load of glucose, the insulin receptors are pulled out of the plasma membrane, such as the GLUT4 and the GLUT2, even though they're also being, there's a contribution of them being dysregulated because of the free fatty acids already because of the exacerbation of the lipogenic state that is because of obesity. So ultimately what happens, because of all the high levels of circulating insulin, continuing to try to keep up with all the circulating glucose, is that the insulin starts to feed back, destroy the beta cells. Okay. So that ultimately leads to actually frank insulin insufficiency in the chronic obesogenic diabetic type 2 state, and then all the way from insufficiency to complete resistance to the insulin. So you have overweight people. They synthesize a lot of inflammatory cytokine, TNF-alpha, because there's a lot of reactive oxygen, and that triggers the innate immune response. You also have a lot of free fatty acid. TNF-alpha and free fatty acid, insulin resistance. Insulin resistance then ultimately will lead to the metabolic syndrome, which also has, as part of its presentation, um, high blood pressure. Pancreas tries to compensate for that, so elevation you get an elevation of insulin, the hyperinsulinemia initially. You get trying to uh, you getting the body to normalize blood sugar. You get a lot of circulating triacylglycerol. You have a very low amount of high-density lipoprotein circulation because you're not transporting anymore back to the liver. And as I said, the metabolic syndrome, you're getting hypertension, you're getting high blood pressure. This is because of the effects on the Renal and water uptake balance and the, and the sodium balance because of angiotensin corruption, which I've talked about previously. Further high levels of glucose, free fatty acid, and now insulin. The pancreas can no longer compensate for all of this massive damage to the beta cells. And then you get Frank type 2 diabetes or T2D. Insulin is often higher than normal, and you get to that stage. Blood sugar then becomes really high because no more compensation. So, hyperglycemia. You have hypertriglyceridemia. Uh, You again maintain a low HDL fraction in the blood, and the blood pressure still is high. So this is a very ill state. Type 2 diabetes is a very uh, damaging pathophysiology, which is very high morbidity and very close to mortality if anything triggers it or pushes it even further down uh, that pathophysiological ladder. So... What normally regulates glucose metabolism, I think you're pretty aware of it by now, you know that insulin is secreted in the pancreas, right, by the beta cells, and it's in the specific islets of the Langerhans. The beta cells produce proinsulin. Alpha cells produce glucagon. The delta cells produce somatostatin, which controls both of them as a buffering hormone. And another cell type in the pancreas is called the F-cells, produce pancreatic polypeptide also, which helps regulate these pathways. So you have multiple processes that are going on to try to regulate the whole system. Okay. And meaning you want a homeostatic control, but now it's completely out of whack because of this obesity. um, That is something that is chronically built up and chronically built up usually over years of overeating and poor, (coughs) um, exercise programs. It's not going to go away just because a person starts going on a diet. It's not going to go away just because a person starts walking a mile every other day. As long as it took to get there, it's going to take at least as long to get back to a normal homeostatic state. So that's why it's such a dangerous disease. And the earlier you become obese, the more diseased you're going to be for the rest of your life. And your life's going to be shortened because of it. So the hormonal regulation, of course, You ingest nutrients, it stimulates the release of a glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide called the GIP, and you also get something called the glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1. Those are from cells actually in the gut, okay? Those stimulate the production of insulin-inhibit and glucagon, so they are signaled to the pancreas. Insulin stimulates the diffusion of glucose in the adipose and muscle tissue, both of which are Insulin-dependent glucose uptake, and the glucose is oxidized in the cell. There's glycolysis, and it can be used primarily to just synthesize glycogen, for example, in the muscle tissue. It's the way it's supposed to work. Okay. Fasting state glucose is produced by glycogenolysis, the breakdown of glycogen, and via gluconeogenesis. Like gluconeogenesis is simply the synthesis of glucose from non-carbohydrate precursors, and no fatty acids are not the precursors for that carbon. Uh, glucose either because fatty acids cannot be converted to glucose in animal systems. Okay, it's because we don't have the enzymes necessary to carry out the glyoxylate cycle, like microorganisms and plants can. Okay, because of that, fatty acids that become oxidized down to acetyl CoA are used to make ketone bodies. And they cannot be converted, that carbon cannot be converted to glucose because you don't have the correct enzymes necessary to bypass the TCA cycle. And those enzymes are the ones in the glyoxylate cycle. So that, that's one thing. But what's happening for gluconeogenesis with fatty acid oxidation? Fatty oxidation is providing the NADH and FADH2 for the ATP required for the de novo synthesis energy requiring glucosynthesis, also known as gluconeogenesis. So you get that, I hope, now. All right, so insulin secretion fails uh, to keep up or maintain this high circulating glucose. That's where the problem is. You get this insulin resistance. Glucagon is responsible for most glucose production in the fasting state, of course, but you have counter-regulatory hormones like the corticosteroids. Remember, those are going to increase glucose uh, production. Growth hormone and catecholamines, those are going to be inducing a stress response, try to take out the glucose and use it for energy. And those are all going to augment in various ways through secondary messenger systems and sometimes transcription factor-mediated control of gene expression, um, glucose production. Now, what about exercise in this paradigm? Initially, insulin levels drop uh, upon regular steady-state exercises. This isn't some fantastic cure. You do some aerobic exercise for 20 minutes a day, and all of a sudden you lose your type 2 diabetes. This is something that requires a long-term buildup of exercise to be able to get back to that rheostatic control, that rheostatic homeostatic control. So initially, exercise will cause insulin levels to drop and glucagon and catecholamine levels to go up, increasing the production of free fatty acids and stimulating glycogenolysis, the breakdown of glycogen. Now you're going to get a rise in glucose to meet the energy demands. The muscle tissue will increase metabolism of glucose because now you're getting back to the GLUT4 transporter working because you're dropping free fatty acid levels, remember, even though you're increasing them in the short term because of exercise. You then increase, ultimately, insulin sensitivity. You maintain normal blood glucose levels. This is, again, over a long period of time of decreasing caloric intake and increasing exercise. And ultimately, you get to a lower basal insulin level, and you're back to where you're supposed to be. So I'm going to stop there. This was just part two, getting into the whole paradigm of diabetes. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, the second lecture on the 25th of May, 2020. Bye for now.